Summer is a time when people enjoy traveling. Right? I already mentioned this at the beginning, uh, and many of us have had to probably adjust or, or change or cancel our travel plans this summer, but, but summer's a time when people love to travel. It's fun to go out, explore, and see the world, and one popular way to do that is through something like Airbnb. Right? Instead of the formality of hotels, Airbnb lets you stay in non-traditional places like someone's guest house or in a cabin or something like that. Caitlin and I exclusively used Airbnb for our honeymoon in the UK. And, and we got to stay in some really fun and unique places. But, but of course, as we've already said, travel is much more complicated in the midst of a pandemic. And, and things are shifting and changing. Airbnb, in fact, just a, about a month or so ago, recently noted that their bookings are increasingly being made last minute uh, and, and often by people who live nearby, right? So, so rather than grand vacations, it's more like an upgraded staycation that people are taking. And another trend that my dad told me about this past week is that one of the most popular searches on Airbnb is for cabins. For cabins, so people are looking for rustic, reclusive getaways rather than cool urban experiences. And this makes total sense in the midst of a pandemic, right? But this popularity trend for cabins has actually been on the rise for the past few years. And I think this reveals something about a core human impulse. In times of trial and difficulty, our impulse is often to run for cover. Our impulse is to run for cover. Our impulse is self-preservation. And of course, this is true physically. I think of the fire drills uh, that we had back in school days, you know, where you get out of the building as quickly as possible, or tornado drills where you line up and get low to the ground, or back to those duck and cover drills of the Cold War era. Some of you might remember those. But this can also be true in relationships. Think of responding to conflicts with the silent treatment, right? To flee instead of engage. Or it can be true spiritually as well. Think of the term holy huddle. Have you ever heard that before? It describes churches going into this sort of self-preservation mode and blocking out the rest of the world. And so whether it's cabin getaways, duck and cover drills, or holy huddles, this is one way people often respond to challenging circumstances, to just flee and run away. And this is the kind of situation that our psalm today reflects on. So go ahead and open your Bible to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. This is where we are today as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms for the summer. And in Psalm 11, the psalmist is in the midst of a challenging circumstance, and a group of people is telling him to run for the hills, right? Get out of here. But as the psalmist reflects on God, he begins to question that impulse of self-preservation and looking for another way. So let's read Psalm 11, beginning in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. 
How can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His gaze examines humankind. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the lover of violence. On the wicked, he will rain coals of fire and sulfur. A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being our refuge in times of trouble. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of the scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the Lord, I take refuge. These are the words that open this psalm. And that is what this psalm is all about. But what does that mean? What, what does it actually look like to take refuge in God? Well, that's what the rest of the psalm wrestles with. And, and we can really split it into two primary parts, right? In the first section, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist recounts some bad advice that he's been given. And then in the second section, verses 4 through 7, the psalmist responds to that bad advice by reflecting on a good God. So I want to look at each of these sections together and then reflect on what it means for us to take refuge in God. So let's start with the bad advice that we see in verses 1 through 3. In the first verse, the psalmist says, How can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? See, at the very start, the psalmist rejects this as bad advice. But, but why? I mean, surely fleeing isn't always bad, right? I mean, Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife when she tried to tempt him. David fled from Saul when he tried to kill him. And even Jesus several times slipped through the crowds when the time wasn't right. So fleeing in and of itself isn't bad. But the psalmist does reject this as bad advice to flee like a bird to the mountains. And I think... That is because this advice is given without any spiritual discernment, without any reference to God at all. The basic advice is in verse 1, flee to the mountains. But then verses 2 and 3 provide the reasoning behind it, all right? Which can basically be summed up as fear and hopelessness fear and hopelessness. So in verse two, the reasoning goes, for look, 
The wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So this advice to flee is given out of fear of the wicked. And fear is such an interesting thing. When we are in the grips of fear, it has this way of narrowing our perspective so that that which we fear becomes the only thing that we can see. It's like a kid who can't fall asleep until their parent has checked under the bed for monsters, right? It's the only thing he can think of and can't possibly fall asleep. We have a tendency to fixate on our fears. And that is what the advice giver is doing here. All he can see is the wicked. They're bending bows that shoot in the dark. There's no consideration of God who is a shield against arrows and a light amidst darkness. Just a fixation on the fear and that narrowed perspective that it brings. And this narrowed perspective and fixation on fear leads to a sense of hopelessness, which we see in verse 3. The advice giver says, if the foundations are destroyed, well, then what could the righteous do? So fear has led to an utter hopelessness. Foundations are destroyed. Things are broken beyond repair. Nothing can be done. So all that is left to do is flee to the mountains, run away, give up, and get out, right? But the psalmist rejects this assessment of the situation. The psalmist rejects this advice how can you say this to me? Is what he asks in that first verse. The psalmist doesn't give fear or hopelessness the time of day. Instead, he responds to this bad advice by reflecting on a good God. And we see this in the rest of the psalm, beginning in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The psalmist resists crippling fear of the wicked by remembering and, and focusing on the Lord. Instead of fixating on broken foundations, he sets his sights on God's heavenly throne, which is very much intact. And from here, he describes this good God who is on the throne. In the face of fear, the psalmist declares that God sees. And in the face of hopelessness, the psalmist proclaims that God saves. God sees and God saves. So let's look at each of these. All right, first, God sees. We, we read this in the rest of verse 4 from the heavenly throne. God's eyes behold, and his gaze examines humankind. So yes, God sits enthroned on high, but he is not removed from the activities of the world. He beholds. He examines closely. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this part of the psalm in the message, right? He, he says, the advice giver says, run to the mountains. And then in verse four, Peterson writes, but God hasn't moved to the mountains. 
But God hasn't moved to the mountains. God is present and involved. He sees and beholds. That is why the psalmist can resist this bad advice to flee. And instead of fixating on fear, he focuses on God who sees. And instead of giving into hopelessness, he goes on to proclaim that God will save. In verses 5 and 6, he says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the lover of violence. On the wicked, he will rain coals of fire and sulfur. A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, now this language is strange and it's shocking to us, but, but it is the poetic language of judgment. It is the psalmist's way of saying that God is a wise judge who will make things right. God is a wise judge who will make things right. So the advice giver said to be afraid of the wicked, but the psalmist flips this on its head and says that it is the wicked who should be afraid. The advice giver hopelessly asked, what can the righteous do? And the psalmist responds, look at what God is doing. He is on his throne and he is making things right. So instead of fear, there is faith in God. And instead of hopelessness, there is trust that God will make everything right. And this is ultimately how the psalmist concludes in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So just as God is righteous, he loves making things right. He loves righteous deeds. And just as God sees his people, well, his people shall see him, shall behold his face. And this brings us back to where the psalm began, right? It brings us back to that image of taking refuge in the Lord. And I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on this together, right? We've looked through the psalm, which recounts this bad advice based on fear and hopelessness, and then reflects on the good God who sees and saves. Now, what does it look like, with all of this in mind, to actually take refuge in God? How do we actually put this into practice and resist fleeing to the mountains? Well, I think that there are some clues for us about how we can live this out. In the final verse, in verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So taking refuge in God means beholding God's face. Taking refuge in God means beholding God's face. We saw earlier that the advice was bad because it didn't take God into account. Without God, the only thing that was left was fear and hopelessness. So I want to ask you, are there any fears that you are fixated on? Are there any anxieties that come to, that consume your mind and your heart? Are there situations 
in your life that feel hopeless, foundations that feel utterly destroyed and beyond repair? Are there circumstances that you tend to flee from? Circumstances that you just want to disengage from and not interact with at all, right? Just like the advice giver says in the psalm. Whatever these things are, fear, hopelessness, things to flee from, whatever they are, I want you to just take a moment to set these things before the Lord. Take a moment to look up from them and behold God's face. Behold God's face. Fear has this way of narrowing our perspective. But as we look to God, our vision expands and things that seemed hopeless can become infused with all kinds of gospel possibilities. Instead of fleeing, we can face these things with the face of God. Beholding God's face can look like seeing him in prayer. It can look like getting to know him in the story of scripture. Beholding God's face can look like being reminded of him as we receive the bread and cup of communion each week. It can look like worshiping him with other believers, even digitally. As we take refuge in God, we behold his face and our vision of life gets expanded. But, but there's more. There's more than that. If all we do, right, is take communion, go to church, read the Bible, and pray, well, then we might as well be fleeing to the mountains. And, and I'll be honest, this is exactly what our culture wants us to do with our faith. It wants us to believe that faith is a private and individual thing that we can do all by ourselves on secluded mountaintops or in private Airbnb cabins. But the psalm does not only say that we shall behold God's face. It also says that God loves righteous deeds. God loves righteous deeds. And this means that our faith is not merely private devotion, but also public action. Our faith is not merely private devotion, but also public action. Our faith is not something that we can do by ourselves. We must come into contact with others for our faith to become real. Just think of Jesus. He did fast in the wilderness for 40 days by himself, but that led him into the work of healing the sick, calling disciples and preaching to crowds. Our faith leads us to cross the street into community. It leads us to partner for peace together. Taking refuge in God looks less like building a fort and more like putting on armor. 
We're actually talking about the armor of God in our Zoom uh, Sunday meetings, uh, starting this week and for the next few weeks together. Taking refuge in God doesn't look as much like building a fort, but more like putting on armor. Uh, less like retreating and fleeing to the hills and more like suiting up, getting ready to get engaged. Taking refuge in God does not mean fleeing from the world. Far from it, it is because we take refuge in God that we are able to fully engage the world, free of fear and full of hope. Now, what do we do as we set out and engage the world, what do we do when we encounter the wicked people that the psalm talks about? The ones with bows that are bent and arrows ready to strike? Do we attack them? Do we pour burning coals on their heads like it says in verse 6? Well, I, yes. Actually, we do but it doesn't look the way that you think it does. With a gospel-saturated imagination, this is what Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 20. He writes, If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. You see, the gospel transforms everything about the way that we engage with the world. The arrows that we shoot are righteous deeds, the righteous deeds that God loves. The coals that we heap are the burning fire of love. We need not fear our enemies or give up hope for them. We need only love them, and God will do the rest. Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is precisely the point that Psalm 11 is making. Do not flee to the mountains, but take refuge in God. Taking refuge in God is not fleeing to the mountains. Taking refuge in God enables us to act, enables us to love our neighbors and even love our enemies. And so this is my call to you. As you head into this next week, take refuge in God. Take refuge in God. Confront fear with the love of the resurrected Christ. Confront hopelessness with the truth that God sits on the throne. Confront wickedness and injustice with righteous deeds, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do not flee to the mountains, but take refuge in God. Amen.